Welcome everybody to the 34th episode of Quarantined Market Podcast, where some academics get together in the current historical moment and we discuss particular keywords. The keyword for today is shopping. And as guest, we have Alison Holm. So Alan, would you introduce Alison for us, please? Yes, indeed. Alison Hume works in international development at the University of Northampton. Her background is in cultural studies. She's published um, on the commodity trail, the journey of a bargain store product from east to west uh, with Bloomsbury Academic Publishing, which is a book I particularly recommend, by the way. And she's had a new book come out since um, called A Brief History of Thrift. And has also edited a couple of books, one called Consumerism on TV and also The Changing Landscape of China's Consumerism. Uh, so hello, Alison. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Nice to be here. So, Alison, the topic that we've chosen today is shopping. What do you think is a good place to start with shopping? I, I think possibly a good place to start is really to kind of recognise that I think a lot of the images we have in our head when we talk about shopping and the kind of debates about the history of shops and shopping are going to find themselves increasingly outdated I think when, you know, I was thinking this morning when future generations look back at this, they're kind of going to go, is that what you used to imagine when you imagined a consumer? That's going to feel really, really dated. And that's not, um, that's that's going to be because of COVID and possibly ecological crises that may also be part of our future. So the history of shopping tends to be traced back to uh, the rise of the departmental stores in Paris. Do you mm-hmm. think that's a good place to start? I think it's an okay place to start, <laughs> yeah. Um, gosh, where to start with shopping? I mean, yes, I think it's an okay, it's a, it's a decent place to start as long as it is recognised that the kind of prehistory to that is small shops and that there, there is a kind of uh, line of argument that suggests it's it's not quite so simplistic as to say the small shops gave way to the department store, the department store gave way to the shopping mall, then along came the supermarket and then it all went online. You know, there's a lot of truth to that, but the small shop has been remarkably resilient actually throughout the ages um, and still is and has come into its own, of course, in the current crisis as well. So, Yes, if we acknowledge the, the back history, then uh, the department store is a good place to start. Yeah, it's certainly a good place to start in terms of how shopping has uh, created the figure of the consumer. Uh, and I think that is really the nitty gritty of what we talk about when we talk about shopping. We're actually talking about the people who shop. So in that sense, it's, it's a very good place to start. Yeah. And also, I presume issues of consumerism, the spectacle, the commodity fetish. Uh, could you talk a little bit about how all these issues perhaps come together? Sure, yeah. So, I mean, why don't I start with the department store and see where we go with them? So, I mean, I think to do a bit of an introduction in a way, I, I thought it was interesting because I actually looked at what Raymond Williams says about consuming. And he points out that the early uses of the word centred around a sense of using up, destroying, wasting, exhausting, devouring. It was only really from the 18th century that it became a more neutral term. I think that's interesting, and I just want to leave that hanging there. We might come back to something along those lines. So the impact of the the socioeconomic and the political chains has fundamentally altered 
who shops and for what, why and where. And I'm talking about kind of uh, 1920 to the present day, the, the modern age, let's say, around about 1920 to the present day. And that really begins with the department store. And not least in all of this is the influence of, of Keynesianism, of course, with its emphasis on consumption's role in driving production, thereby creating employment opportunities, coupled with various inventions such as TV set for advertising, of course. Um, and this combination of things created what we might think of as the modern consumer that's been written about um, lots and lots. And then, of course, neoliberalism that followed that Keynesianism um, built upon the existence of this consumer, kind of for its own reasons that were aligned, but perhaps not entirely coterminous, shall we say, with Keynesian thinking. But one way or the other, the shopper became deeply embedded within the fabric of everyday life. Um, and I think COVID has been a kind of useful unravelling of that embedding of the shopper in everyday life. Um, but also, there's been a kind of expected refusal to acknowledge this on the part of our politicians and leaders. So I'll, I'll come on to that. So this this modern age witnessed the tail end of the trans transition from small shops to the kind of classic brightly lit department store. The physical spaces of shopping as a result became less functional. And this is one of the crucial things, much more theatrical shopping being increasingly sold as an experience, as it still is, of course. In fact, even more so now, although, again, that's that's been challenged by people being less able to actually be present in shops physically. But I think the arrival of the department store tends to be seen as very emblematic of modernity and in many ways um, symbolic of that. So their displays represented some kind of link to the outside world. And I, I think, in a way, ironically, this is why they will increasingly be seen as dated and the concept of the shopper. So the department store in particular was, was very much linked with um, world exploration, colonialism, foreign lands, you know, the exoticism of empire, a, an increasing abundance of goods and global goods. So it really was a, a window on the world as such. And crucially... For the first time, you could go into a shop and there was no obligation to purchase. So for the first time, shopping became linked to another modern creation, leisure, and this pleasurable looking. So th those are all things to kind of attach to the idea of the department store. And we get, you know, people like Anne Friedberg talking about the gaze, department store windows is all about, you know, looking and pleasure and it being okay to be kind of... Um, vehemently aspirational <laughs> let's call it that and with that kind of sense of shopping as an activity and this creation of glamorous modern spaces came the invention of the consumer as a social construct as well but that's what I think is most crucial about that kind of era and the department store that it saw the creation of a consumer and it's a very specific creation it, it's female um, I think largely it kind of still is it certainly was at the time and that female is no longer responsible she's no longer a kind of dour frugal housewife provisioning and fulfilling her family's needs as best she can but she is uh, full of desire um, she is enabled to seek pleasure in shopping and often described and I use this word very carefully um 
to be liberated as a result of being enabled to be a consumer. Um, of course, we might also say that she was enslaved in other ways <laughs> as a result of being um, a consumer. But that, that was the kind of construction of the consumer. So, Alison, with regards to that formation of the female consumer, there does seem to have been some sort of popular notions that this female consumer was a hysteric and all sorts of misogynistic uh, narratives um, and accusations of shoplifting and a general suspicion of that character. Would you say a particular type of misogyny around the female shopper begins and perhaps persists to the, to the contemporary? I think the short answer is yes. There is still a stereotype, you know, in everyday life that there's an assumption um, that, that women somehow enjoy this pleasurable shopping. Um, not something I personally have ever related to. <laughs> and, and, and the kind of, um, you know, common day backlash against that is, is you shop like a man. <laughs> not quite sure what that means either. Um, so, yeah, I think there is... And also, at the same time, I'm not sure how useful it is because I kind of want to blow all of these categories away. You know, I, I'm not sure that we know anymore what shopping is, um, what a shopper is, who they are, what gender they are or anything. Um, and there might be some genuine liberation in that. OK, well, before we get to the um, current moment, uh, one other thing that we associate around that 19th century period is the uh, commodity fetish and the separation of the consumer from the social means of production. Um, and indeed, I'm aware that you've published a book on commodity fetishism. So uh, can you just um, introduce this idea of the commodity fetish and why it helps us to have a political analysis of shopping itself? Okay, so so in very basic terms... Um... The commodity fetish is the, the value that a product um, magically picks up, to use uh, Marx's language, that enables whoever is selling it to charge more for it than simply the costs that went into its production. That's a very technical explanation there. So it's the, the element of magic that enters a product that enables it to um, make profit for capitalism, but also to be reified um, by any potential consumer. And the disappearance of the, the social means of production as well. Um, I'm thinking now of the follow the commodity work that helps us to trace the commodity back to the various people that produced it. So to remind us that these commodities emerged out of the actual hands of, of people rather than just kind of um, some sort of logic of the commodity, which is entirely abstract. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, there's been no end of quite famous studies now that have uh, followed the thing and exposed the conditions of, of labour, for example, um, exposed, you know, what goes into creating the fetish. And, and I, I think that's was very, very valid, um, was very of its time and is well established now. I mark at least 20 undergraduate dissertations a year that focus on um, what is to be done about this and whether fair trade is, is enough, you know. Um, so I think that's um, it was important work and it's interesting. And we are now on to a next phase of, yeah, um, what is to be done. Alison, speaking of both uh, thrift and excess, yeah, you mentioned that there was an idea of the thrifty housewife mm -hmm. that then became this sort of a 
this kind of a manifestation of excessive affect and, uh, you know, just being in a shopping mall and how this character gets into these excited energies and this mania that Alan was kind of alluding to as well. So I'm here reminded of Zizek when he said that for him it's interesting that the narrative that is made public, the narrative of capitalism almost never speaks about excess, but rather it's curious mixture of thrift and the excess of thrift. So when you go shopping to a shopping mall, they never say buy as much as you can. No, they say buy free products and then you can get one for free. So the core message of capitalism in its narrative in a shopping mall, very particularly, but in general for Zizek is actually this curious excess of thrift rather than excess itself. So can we link that to the development of the consumer in the sense of a shopper in any way? Yeah, I think we can somehow. I mean, this is basically Bauman's kind of walking contradiction consumer, isn't it, in action, you know, someone who literally walks into a, a shop and is is attempting to be the good consumer that helps society maintain economic progress whilst not overspending. Um, and, and that is the great trick of capitalism. It's also the great uh, trick of capitalism in stealing, <laughs> I feel, uh, thrift for its own purposes um, and kind of changing that meaning of thrift. So, so my book on thrift, basically that's the starting point, that thrift, the initial meaning of it etymologically was about thriving. That's where it comes from. And it was about using things well. It, it wasn't about saving. And I think what the the, the capitalist theft of thrift has done is to take the later understanding of thrift and use it for its own purposes in order actually to bolster capitalism so that we don't fall into a paradox of thrift where saving means that the economy actually falters. Then when you think of a long time ago, uh, we tried to publish in Journal of Retailing which is considered to be a very conservative journal, almost all of its quantitative research and so on and so forth. And then we tried to, we tried to send in a paper uh, based on Heideggerian affect ideas such as atmospheres and the mood and so on. And uh, we thought that we were doing something new and curious here in the context of that particular journal at least. And they immediately told us that, oh, this kind of affect kind of thinking has already been present for a long time. Just look at the old scholars, like I think they mentioned Martineau from the 50s writing about this. And then we actually checked the sources and it's literally him just saying that there's something more going on in the shopping experience than just, you know, rationality and objects and use and so on. So, so this idea of this affective excess, now moving from this kind of thrift to excess, that has been always, of course, part of the shopping mall or the shopping experience. As you already mentioned, that the shopping experience became more about these you know, flashy windows and so on. So there's always this magical effect there. So what do we then make of this? Um, if we if we want to discuss shopping past these ideas of utility or use value and focus precisely on the affect or the excess, then we get to concepts like, you know, shop till you drop. Or I'm reminded of a Tony Blair saying that you should go out shopping now to save the economy. And of course, then we get to the idea of the consumer citizen more more. But uh, what should we think today of this, especially now considering that we are increasingly in lockdown and spending time in our homes, how much is the relevance of this, precisely this affective dimension of the shopping mall or the shopping experience? 
gosh, there's a lot to unpick there. Um, I, I think, firstly, I, I should say something about um, Miller makes that distinction between uh, provisioning shopping, which uh, for him in, in his argument is not particularly pleasurable, and treat shopping. And that is a division that I um, have questioned um, and still do, and even more so, actually, um, because the people who I studied who who regularly shopped in pound stores would get huge pleasure and treat from shopping in a very functional way for things that were very functional in a very functional setting um, with two pounds in their back pocket. So <laughs> um, I'm not convinced the distinction is as straightforward or indeed useful as we often think it is. Um, so that's that's the first thing to say. Um, there was something else I was thinking off the back of what you said, and it's gone now. I was mentioning Tony Blair and Shop Till You Drop and stuff like that. Yeah, and, and then we, we have it again now. We had it after 9-11 with, you know, Bush saying, go back to shopping, get yourself down to Disneyland, you know, Trump saying the same thing. Boris, no surprises, saying the same thing now, you know. And it's always this notion of, this is, this is why I say it's absolutely linked to Keynesianism, um, because... There's a, a complete assumption that is that goes completely unquestioned that the answer is to get out there and shop. And that's what saves jobs, because we are still in this very dated approach to the economy. And I think and I kind of hope that, you know, like it or not, we will not save ourselves by shopping. <laughs> um, and this may be the point at which that all falls to pieces. It, it might work in a small way and it might work for a while, but there is a fundamental change going on. And, and I have been kind of inwardly screaming at the potential loss of this huge opportunity to do something different in society um, and in the economy. And that that kind of essentially Keynesian thinking is not, is not the answer anymore and that there will be either a complete change in the consumer citizen and that is not what we will be or the term will, will just make no sense anymore you know and I think many people in lockdown the, the thing that everyone's done of course is sort out stuff and throw away stuff <laughs> um, people aren't rushing back to the shops uh, it's the only answer that we have but it's it's not the answer anymore that was a very practical answer to a, a very deep question sorry <laughs> We already mentioned uh, Bauman, and uh, so Bauman has this idea, of course, that if you aren't invested in all these ways of how to consume and so on, then you are a failed consumer equaling a failed citizen, right? Yeah. So, uh, and you also said that uh, you can't really relate to the shopping mall or the excitements that you get from shopping, and neither can I. I, I, I positively, I hate the shopping mall. So <laughs> are we then to... Are we then to conclude that we, we... Me too. I'm immediately claustrophobic. Yeah, exactly. Are we then to conclude that we are uh, failed consumers? What are we to do about this? How should we be reprogrammed for society? <laughs> well, if I'm a failed consumer, I'm I'm rather proud of that. But, but I want to say this is not some sort of like Frankfurt School rebellion against, you know, the evils of consumerism or desire. I, it's, it's not moralizing. It is... It's embedded in this kind of um, appreciation of the genuine meaning of thrift, um, not relying upon consumption to save us all, and getting back our time and lowering our stress levels and being able to live in, in ways that are probably 
more equal and healthier for body and mind for all of us. Um, and I, I think for a long time, and I struggled with it as I was writing the book on thrift, actually, but I felt very guilty about saying this. And I, I felt that this was something you can only say coming from a, a very privileged probably Western world, probably white middle-class position. Um, and I think, if anything, by the end of that book, I realised actually there was an ecological imperative, which made it okay to be white and middle-class in saying this. <laughs> I, I stopped apologising. Um, and I, I think COVID has done that even more, actually. that it, It's irrelevant now. We cannot continue as we are. Um, a virus like this will stop us being able to consume and shop in the way we are anyway so that kind of uh privileged guilt can can just be put to one side and we can get on with creating something new i wonder alison from the perspective of financialization i have wondered for a while before covid um if it's the case that we're overstating shopping and the idea of consumer decision making so what i'm thinking of specifically is the rise in direct debit and ways of just reaching into the household bank account and taking out money in a way that bypasses the normal consumer decision making. So certainly the amount of direct debits that people are entering uh, is expanding. Netflix and Amazon Prime and so on are, are, are good examples. But in addition to that, things like student tuition fees lock people into having a good bulk of their income just automatically taken out of their um, their, their monthly salary before they've even considered us as having anything to do with consumerism. So I wonder, is that the trend that we're moving towards, towards just a financialized arrangement between people and state and organization, rather than this you know, proactive, uh, thrill-seeking um, uh, lifestyle of the consumer? Yeah, that's interesting. I guess there's a truism to that. I wonder if there are also other types of um, shopping that are kind of cropping up now, though. And, you know, time will tell. Shopping for secondhand products is having a, a huge kind of revival or increase. Um, and that can be about thrill-seeking in a way. It may be that there's two kind of polarised pictures in a way. That on one hand, there's the financialization that you're that you're kind of talking of. And on the other hand, what we might see is the only way to kind of rejuvenate the high street is to have more very unusual small businesses a much more kind of uh, local economy and that is very much about face-to-face -face shopping um, and paying in cash or in even in local currencies I mean made up currencies like the Brixton pound you know I'd like to ask uh, one more question uh, about the kind of affective uh, nature of shopping and because of course we understand as critical scholars that you will never fulfill any of any notion of desire by purchasing consumer objects you just get this mini channeling of your desires and then you're back to square one or even worse perhaps but of course a shop or like you mentioned the shop window is like a buffet of mini excitements and in a previous episode James Fitchett called this whole thing this kind of uh, mundane and banal utopia that we are now presented every day. Uh, we can all have these mini excitements of our energies and desires, and they promise utopia, uh, but unfortunately their promise, of course, always falls short. Then I'm reminded of Baudrillard, uh, who always said that the curious thing that happens in capitalist consumer culture 
is that even more of the same can be de desired and can be seen as a very kind of a exciting, desiring impulse, that you just have more of the exact same commodity object. How should we talk about, again, because so much of our literature or the typical literature that you come across, especially marketing and consumer research, they still have the notion that the consumer does at least relatively informed choices in the market or is at least, to a high degree, agentic and meaningful in the choices that we make. Should there be more focus on reimagining this idea of the consumer as this agentic individual meaning maker that typically still tends to be produced in these literatures? I think my position on that is probably one of absolutely acknowledging the agency of the consumer, although perhaps not in conventional ways, but not writing out the structure. And I think, I think a lot of that literature, um, and, and Daniel Miller is classic for doing this, really, really emphasises the agency, almost kind of celebrates it as if these people are in some sort of creative ecstasies when they're shopping and because they picked a red sofa, not a yellow one. And um, I, I find that intensely annoying because it completely negates the lack of, well, of the lack of consumer choice in that large companies are owning most of the kind of structure that is dictating that choice. And there is choice within that, but it's, you know, there are structures that define that. Um, and also writing out what one's own personal finances do to, to that creative choice. So I sit rather awkwardly on the fence with that one, I'm afraid. <laughs> now, you, you seem to have been moving towards quite a radical supposition about dissolving the category of consumer as is currently understood. Can you talk a little bit more of what you have in mind, please? Yeah, <laughs> um, has put me on the spot, hasn't it? <laughs> I mean, I, I think there will there will be other ways of getting stuff. Let's call it that. I, I think there we may find there will be a much more of a uh, market for swapping and secondhand products, uh, much more of a kind of makers um, emerging market and an aesthetic to things. I think that's already happening. You know, but I think the bigger picture is that we are entering a phase where it is it is no longer going to be that useful to talk about economic growth in a classic way. And I noticed recently that Caroline Lucas was um, given some airtime to talk about degrowth um, and spoke brilliantly as usual and practically about how that could work. But it's it's still not being taken particularly seriously um, by mainstream politicians. But our classic economic idea of growth, which is essentially exponential growth, um, if we continue to grow at, let's say, I don't know, 2% across a year, that's not growth in the classic economic sense. That's not going to be able to continue as a concept. That's not going to be able to continue. And, and it's only people who cannot remove themselves from thinking about growth in that classical sense who fail to take degrowth seriously. Because, of course, if you define it like that, then degrowth inevitably means recession or even depression. But it doesn't mean that. It's a, it's a sidestepping. It's, um, it's just a way of saying maintain the things that are most important to us, you know, and get away from that idea that we have to build, build, build. 
I mean, certainly we, we've tended to have this very direct relationship between consumption and production and economic growth. Um, and then often a global warming gets understood as part of that direct causal relationship. But one of the odd things, of course, uh, is that during austerity, uh, not really much progress happened in terms of addressing issues of global warming, despite the fact that the reality of that period for a huge amount of households around the world was a major reduction in their consumer spending. So, I mean, isn't that interesting that that link, if, if the idea is to nudge people towards shopping less, then in a sense that's already happened as a consequence of uh, austerity, and yet it hasn't really helped the situation much at all. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But uh, again, I think that's because we are measuring things in those classic economic terms. So it's very hard to say what that would have done had we had a different agenda and different aims for that. Um, and isn't it ironic that all of that money apparently saved somewhere from austerity was pretty much wiped out by putting people on furlough in one week flat? There's a depressing thought. Now, as, as we move on to... There's a depressing guess, thought. As we move on to online shopping, one of the uh, outcomes of that is that shopping becomes more abstract and now it seems, especially as we're just coming out of this era when a lot of the shops have been shut, people have been relating and engaging in shopping in the, in the most abstract way possible via uh, websites and, and internet shopping. Um, do you think that we might be amidst some sort of paradigm shift uh, in terms of not just the material reality of how people go about shopping, but also that idea of shopping as spectacle and so on? Um, that we've continued to practice since the, the French departmental stores. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that's what I mean by it will become very dated. I think, you know, um, the current generation, um, certainly their children, will look back at images of, of the shopper and shops and, and find it incredibly dated. Um, this kind of big moment of pleasure. And I, don't, I think they'll just find it very, very strange because shopping will have changed. It will be much more online or it will be in very bespoke small stores um, and, and the high street may well look like that. I also think there's, there's um, a story unfolding here about public space. So into, um, you know, a lot of their large malls are, are going to have to be done something else with. Um, will they become accommodation? Maybe we don't know, you know. Um, but there's a story there about apparently communal spaces that were kind of celebrated when shopping malls, you know, kind of became the big popular thing that weren't really ever communal spaces, that were basically a, a private ownership of a huge amount of apparently public space, are now again in question, um, may well become genuinely public again, may not, but they, but they are changing. So there's another story unfolding there about who is entitled to go and use these spaces, whether they are shops or not. I, I was checking out a recent interview piece uh, involving uh, you and Ellen and others, and quite wonderfully there, you said that you were talking about how consumer research approaches the idea of communities, and you basically said that this idea that is in the literature, it does not challenge in any way a classical liberal economic model in which only capitalism can form the backdrop for innovation and the hardship involved is seen as an opportunity rather than an injustice. So picking off from that, I would like to 
attach that to the current situation. Have you noticed any interesting moments of where now hardship and, uh, you know, desperate relations in the pandemic are increasingly being seen as or put out as opportunities for new products or shopping or new approaches to, you know, human sociality? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I think about just my my little town that I live in. Um, the theatre has managed to procure some outdoor space in public gardens and started to put on the productions, weather permitting, outside. Um, I wonder whether, you know, we're, <laughs> we're going to start having wandering minstrels again, which would be quite nice. Um, a lot of the shops that weren't previously offering delivery services have offered them, um, including not just food and drink, but shops come to the door and, and done kind of fittings on a, um, a like a fold-out plastic mat with special markings on it to show where how, where people must stay. <laughs> um, so there's been lots of this. I mean, maybe I live in a particularly kind of go-ahead town, but people adapt. Um, and I think a low small businesses obviously have suffered the most. That is also where the innovation lies. And I, I think I feel really hopeful about the potential for small businesses to step into this gap very successfully. So, Eddie, um, I feel from what you were saying earlier that you've you've a few more areas that you can you want to cover. I think I just wanted to sort of like try and connect this to the idea of the Anthropocene a little bit. What I really think is that COVID, for for this unique moment, has taken us in many ways down a similar path as a an ecological disaster would. In that things stopped. Um, lockdown kind of stopped the clock, you know, structure was gone, no going to work anymore, no taking children to school, no reason for days of the week to be differentiated somehow. Um, and as a result of this stopping, nature came back. You know, we heard news stories about whales swimming in waters that had previously been too noisy for them, certain bird song being heard that hadn't been heard for years. Um, we stopped consuming um in Raymond Williams's sense of the term, the planet's resources as much. We stopped buying petrol, for example, because we didn't drive anywhere. Bike sales spiralled upwards, you know. And from the beginning of lockdown, I had Walter Benjamin's ideas about there being revolution in just stopping, kind of tapping away in my brain. Um, so I just want to quote some choice lines from Walter Benjamin. This is from On the Concept of History, um, in which he says, Marx says that revolutions are the locomotive of world history, but perhaps it's quite otherwise. Perhaps revolutions are an attempt by the passengers on this train, namely the human race, to activate the emergency brake. And I'm really painfully aware that there has been backlash against this, um, not least by Frederick Jameson, who calls it an odd idea, which I think is rather marvellous. He does this partly as it goes against Marx's view, of course, of the way that history will unfold in order communism but also because in it he kind of him and many others sense this sort of rather unpalatable romanticism that looks backwards and suggests kind of non-industrialized perhaps rural perhaps even feudal idyll you know um and we see a similar backlash in certain reactions to the impact of um henry thoreau's book walden which um i had a whole section on in my book on thrift in which he too advocates a simpler less industrialized life and i totally get that that romantic backward looking kind of answer to this is unpalatable for many people 
but I don't think that's what any of these people are doing. And I think there's a similar backlash against degrowth um, for very similar reasons, because people imagine it to be um, a somehow horrifically romantic and and privileged rural position to be in. And, and I, that's not the kind of vision that I'm advocating at all. I think there's a way of doing this in a very smart, potentially digital way, and also a very city-based way, because cities aren't going to go away. So I think that Anthropocene is crucial as a concept. And this crisis kind of makes thinking about the Anthropocene even more relevant, and not just in the obvious sense that this is a global pandemic, but rather because it's it's relevant because at its core... COVID insists that we are all in this together. And I say that really carefully because obviously there are huge inequalities, huge global disparities, groups of people on the planet who are impacted in far more horrific ways than others as a result of this. But there is a fundamental truth to the idea, certainly when it comes to ecological disaster, but also when it comes to this global health crisis, that there are no boundaries. The crisis knows no nation states. It has attacked princes and prime ministers as well as refugees. So I still hold on to this idea that there is something useful about the Anthropocene, therefore. And I think it COVID has brought us in some important ways down a similar pathway to that which ecological concern does as well. I think we might look to a figure such as Greta Thunberg, for example, who I consider to be one of the first genuinely anthropocenic campaigners in that Although she speaks to nation state leaders, she cares not for the concept of a nation state. She cares about the globe. And I think as an eco-warrior, she's indicative of what is needed in the degrowth space. And we have a Greta Thunberg for degrowth, please. (laughs) So we need someone who will say nation state reactions to COVID may well become in the short to medium term increasingly self-interested, protective, even isolatory. But states do this at their peril. And just like climate change, the, the impact of COVID will be unpredictable. It will unravel society in totally unknowable ways, regardless of who's got piled the most PPE or the most vaccines, you know. And I, I think the current leadership's appeals to a concept such as our lifestyle and shopping um, that are not universal will, will be to their detriment. And when we really step right back and look at this globally, they appear just at best banal and at worst dangerously ridiculous, really. And I think future generations will look back and consider this as a very dated attitude and the idea that we save ourselves by shopping as a very dated attitude as well. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And uh, uh, not in all these words, but uh, Stefano Horny in a recent episode, he was... um... I think treading similar boards in the sense that he was saying that he doesn't like the words uh, social distancing or even physical distancing because for him it's not those are misnomers. Rather, it is capitalism that is social distancing. So in this sense, I could read Stefano's position. It's similar maybe to what you were talking about. It's not about this kind of romanticism that we're supposed to go back to the past, but rather that we should understand our social relations and material relations with the globe in a rather new way, rather than this kind of reactionary and historical way. Could this be something that is relevant here? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, Natalie. And I I must uh, go and read that in more detail. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and, and I think, and I haven't yet really 
been able to kind of pinpoint what it is exactly, but our relationship with material things is changing as a result of it as well. And, and that's not just in a kind of cliche way of, oh God, a whole generation of kids have been out in the garden growing peas, you know. <laughs> Although that has perhaps also happened for those of us with gardens, but, you know, it's, it's, it's much bigger than that. Alison, uh, with regards to your comments on the Anthropocene, I'm thinking of David Harvey's analysis whereby capital generally grows at a compound rate of 3%, which, if it holds, requires us to have, in about 20 years' time, twice as much capital in the globe as we have now. Um, now, we, we've critiqued and don't like this causal relationship between consumption, production, economic growth, but there will nonetheless have to be some sort of expansion of consumerism and produced goods in order to facilitate a doubling of the uh, global capital. So if not from producing goods or from people buying goods, then where is economic growth of the future going to come from? <laughs> I hate to say it, but I kind of want to question your question. Why does there have to be growth as we know it? Well, because we live in capitalism and capital begets capital. So, <laughs> I mean, our, <laughs> and we also have learned the hard way and it's very difficult to get out of capitalism. It is, but um, please don't tell me it's impossible. Um, do you know, I, I, I'm... Whenever I have these conversations about degrowth, I, I kind of I keep having to say, but this is not really anti-capitalist. It's just that capitalism isn't relevant in, in degrowth. Um... I mean, people would, <laughs> it's not really simplistic, it's almost laughable, but people would still kind of be able to live. I mean, if you think about the fundamentals of what it facilitates life, even a kind of decent life on the planet, um, it doesn't require the things that capitalism assumes it does. I, I suppose one more kind of solid answer to, to what you're saying is self-sufficient communities may well become more prevalent as they are already and were doing before um before covid came along and that this may well be an answer so the necessity to procure the things that we need in order to survive externally will decrease uh, so that is one answer um and that will mean we simply don't require as much capital um and funnily enough Last summer, I did some field work in a self-sufficient community in the south of France, and I was planning to go and do a follow-up case study in the Canary Islands. The second community that I was going to go and study, that I didn't because, of course, COVID happened and I couldn't go, basically were self-sufficient due to relying upon alternative tourism. So tourists would come and stay um, at their kind of alternative village whereas the first community that I did do were completely self-sufficient they um, didn't need to buy any food um, and they they relied upon nothing and no one to bring in any income um, they've been hit very differently by covid so the, the place I did go has been pretty much untouched it hasn't made any difference to them uh, the place in the Canary Islands doesn't exist I had an email from them um, shortly after I emailed them to cancel the booking saying Unfortunately, we don't even know if our community is going to survive. Um, and I have emailed them since and there's been no response. So that's very interesting. But, you know, any self-sufficiency that is still kind of embedded in 
capitalistic relations has found this very difficult. Um, whereas the genuine self-sufficiency model simply doesn't require that kind of logic. One of the evaluations of the amount of um, oil that has yet to be extracted from the ground, so future projections is of about $80 trillion. So if that was to be cancelled, for example, if, if we were to move to a, a, a type of economy where we didn't want that oil, we'd be talking immediately about a collapse of the entire global economic structure. So, I mean, I, I don't really see how we can transition from one to the other without some sort of catastrophic uh, doomsday scenario in which we all have to die. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> which may be happening. Do you want which an answer? We may that? be amidst right now, of course. <laughs> Do you want an answer to that? <laughs> well, if you wouldn't mind, please. <laughs> Oh, gosh. I think there are many scenarios in which there might be something catastrophic in which many of us die. I think that's that's one of them. Um, I'm not sure it has to be a kind of dramatic, catastrophic change from one to the other. Um, fossil fuels are certainly an issue. Yeah. But um, I mean, fossil fuel capitalism and, the, you know, there's been stuff written about this is deemed to be by some on the way out anyway. So... I'm not sure it has to be quite so apocalyptic. <laughs> okay, well, apologies by hysteria. Thank you, Alison. Thanks very much, uh, Alison. It's been really fun talking to you. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. <sighs>